0: Popular legend has it that on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, an obscure professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg, nailed a list of 95 theses or propositions on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. In reality, the scene was much less dramatic. He did what was very common at the time, and that was to serve and issue an invitation to debate. So Luther's purpose was simply to organize an academic conversation around issues he was concerned about. But what he didn't anticipate was the way that that simple act would set into motion the Protestant Reformation. Luther believed the church in his day had drifted and he hoped to reform it, to bring it back to the original message of Jesus and the early Christian church. And he believed the Bible was the central means to discern God's will. So he maintained that salvation came by grace through faith alone. That's what he read in the Bible. He was especially appalled, though, by the practice of selling indulgences. These were documents that promised forgiveness of sins to an individual or for a loved one. To Luther and others, it appeared that salvation was for sale. Now, looking back, historians and theologians have summarized the core beliefs of the Reformation as five sola. Sola is the Latin word for alone, and these five were sola scriptura, that's scripture or the Bible, sola Christus, that's Christ, sola gratia, grace, sola fide, faith, and soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory. Or in plain English, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, through what we learn from the Bible alone, all done to the glory of God alone. So this week, on the 502nd and second anniversary of the Reformation, and I realize we're two years late, we missed the 500th anniversary, but we're gonna begin to look at the core theological commitments that shape the Protestant tradition that we're a part of. And we're going to tackle one of these solas each week to uncover its significance for today now before I go further I do want to make uh, a quick disclaimer and that is that sometimes the discussion of the Reformation and its theological debates raise tensions between Catholics and Protestants that's certainly not my intention for one I have deep respect for many of the Catholics sincere Catholic believers I've known over the years we share much in common and even though we have differences which are real we need not be divided to the degree that has sometimes existed in history Prominent Catholic priest in the last century said that if the leaders on both sides of the Reformation had been just a little more open-minded, that there might have been a Lutheran order in the Catholic Church, just as there are just Jesuits and Franciscans and Augustinians. The Augustinians were what Luther belonged to. Most Catholics today agree that the Reformers were right on at least some of the issues that, they, that animated their movement. For one, the sale of indulgences, eventually the Catholic Church would, be, would reject that. The result of Luther's call for reform was something Luther himself never intended, and that was the division in the church. At City Church, we're part of the movement that began with Luther, with Luther's bold act, and the convictions that emerged from that movement are central and core to our beliefs as a church. So our purpose today is to begin to talk about these core principles that define who we are, core ideas that for the most part we share with Catholic Christians. But let me make another comment, and that is that I'm not assuming that all of you here today would call yourselves Christians. Some of you have looked at Christianity in the past and said, that's not for me. Others of you are not certain what, you're be- what you believe, and that may be why you're here today. You have a few ideas, but you want more information to be able to sort things out. And still, others of you would call yourselves Christians. So that means that we have people here today in a lot of different places. And that's okay. Wherever you are at, I hope you'll be comfortable during this series. The reformers believe that the convictions um, animated or, excuse me, articulated in these five statements stretched back to the time of Jesus. Many of you will agree. These are your deeply held convictions. But I also want you to know that we respect wherever you are on your spiritual journey. So in the coming weeks, I hope that this will be helpful either as a refresher or as a first look at Christian faith. Now, One other thing I want to mention is that you'll notice these five statements don't come close to covering everything. Um, In fact, the solas cover just the bare essentials of Christian faith. They are not exhaustive. In other words, they don't pretend to explain everything that you might want to know or even maybe need to know. Some topics are left out, some are assumed. But that said, these five short statements cover a great deal of what it is important to understand about the Christian tradition. So let's get started with the first of these, Sola Scriptura, or the Bible alone. In the early 16th century, the Reformers were faced with an institutional church that, was, that had corruption. It, was, it had corrupt leadership. And by the way, Catholic churches, Protestant churches, churches through history have had corrupt leadership, so this isn't a uniquely Catholic thing. But the authority that they appealed to in their critique was the Bible. To them, the The Bible was the standard by which they could judge doctrine or practices of the church that were correct or incorrect. That's why one of the most important values of the Reformation is the idea of the Bible being our final authority for faith and practice. And one of the clearest explanations of how the Bible has been historically viewed in history is given us by St. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 to 17. And here's how Paul, one of the most important leaders, described the Bible. And he first began this way, and he's talking to his young friend, Timothy. He says, from infancy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying the scriptures let us know how to have a relationship with God. And then he continues by saying, all scripture is God breathed. By the way, that's just a word that means it was inspired by God, not inspiring, but inspired by God. And then he says, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking correcting and training in righteousness in other words the bible these are all the ways the bibles can be used including doctrine what we believe and how we are to live and then he finishes by saying so that all god's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work in other words what we read ought to affect not just our beliefs but our behavior as well Now, a couple of other qualifications. Um, Since a short statement like this can't encompass everything, uh, there's some nuance that's necessary for us to understand this particular value. Now, unlike what some say, the Bible doesn't claim to be our only source for knowledge. For example, the Bible doesn't claim to be a science textbook, Uh, but it tells us that there's much we can learn, by the way, from observing creation and listening to our consciences. I have a couple of verses, and I realize you can't read them, the font didn't quite work, these are from Romans chapter 1 where Paul tells us in the first of these set of verses in 19 and 20 that we can learn a lot about God just by observing the world around us or observing creation and nature there are a lot of things we can learn about God and then the next verse or next chapter in chapter 2 he tells us that we can learn a lot from what our consciences tell us that God has created us in his image he's given us a sense and intuition about what's right and good And what that means is that we can learn a lot even from other sources in the Bible. So tradition and reason and experience, all these things are important. But, and this is the key, above all, we privilege the Bible as our supreme authority, especially about what we need to know about God and the life he wants us to live. One of Jesus' closest friends when he was here on earth was Peter, and in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, Peter writes this, his divine power, that is God, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I want you to notice that Peter says we have everything we need, not everything we want. That's because the Bible doesn't have answers to every question. Now, there are principles that we can then maybe puzzle out often to understand new questions, but it doesn't give us a complete list of rules or principles that apply when making every single decision we may need to make. For one, many of the issues we face today weren't around at the time of the Bible. They didn't exist when it was written. So it seems that there are things that we want to know, but God believes we don't need to know. That said, we have what we need. The Bible, Paul says, is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is the good news of salvation found in Jesus is something we can understand clearly. Another thing the reformers recognized, is that the scriptures needed to be interpreted correctly. That is, what they worked to do was to develop principles for reading the Bible. That's why scholars then and scholars today um, have articulated ways for us to understand the Bible, to know the context of what we're reading, to be aware of the literary genre or the type of literature. So there's poetry and there's narrative, there's stories, there's all, all sorts of different kinds of literature in the Bible and also the culture and the intellectual environment of the ancient Near Eastern world. Now all that may sound like the Bible might be difficult to understand, but another conviction of the reformers was that anyone could read the Bible. That's why so many of them, including Luther and William Tyndall and others, translated the Bible into the language of the people. So Luther translated it into German, Tyndall translated it into English, and there were others who translated it into what they called the vernacular, or the common language of the people in which they were living. Anyone, they argued, even someone with just a little bit of education could understand the Bible. Even if they couldn't read, they could hear it read and understand it. They wanted everyone, not just the clergy and the educated, to be able to read the Bible. And they believed that as challenging as it can be to read, that for the most part, the Bible is easy to understand. One of the reasons they believed this is because they were convinced that the Holy Spirit, who had inspired the writers of the Bible, also illuminated the mind of the reader. Sure, we can ignore what the Bible has to say, but if we read with faith and an open mind, they believe that the Spirit will guide us into truth and bring the Bible to life. The idea is that in the Bible, God has spoken and continues to speak. Our final authority for what we believe and how we live our lives, we find in the Bible. It's to be trusted in what it teaches us about God and the world. It tells us the story of God's action in history. It reveals to us how we can know and follow God and it gives us an accurate understanding of the character of God. The Bible then is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it commands, trusted in all that it promises us, and revered in all that it reveals. So what does it mean for the Bible to be our authority on a practical level? Well, first of all, it means that we trust the wisdom of the Bible rather than the changing winds of culture, that we believe what it tells us is best for us, that what it talks about contributes to human flourishing so as Christians then we place ourselves under the authority of the Bible instead of expecting the Bible to agree with us we commit to conform in advance to it Now, many times we read and we like what we read but then there are other times when we have the opposite experience when the Bible challenges us when we don't like what it says when it contradicts what seems like to us maybe even to be common sense it might be The fact that the Bible tells us to turn away from insults when we'd rather get even. To live more simply so that others might simply live when we would like to indulge ourselves. To submit to the Bible's teaching on sexuality or business practices or maintaining a relationship with a difficult person. uh, person. Whatever it might be, when we find clear direction in scripture, rather than ignore it, we obey. Now we'd all love to pick and choose from what the Bible has to say. To obey what makes sense and set aside what doesn't. But that would mean that we are, in a sense, creating our own God, our own Bible, something more to our liking. So if we can think about it this way, if God is all-knowing, all-wise creator and sustainer of the universe, wouldn't you expect that he might contradict you on at least one or two things? Otherwise, what we have is a God of our own making. Rather than taking God for who he is, we insist on playing a sort of cosmic version of Mr. Potato Head and creating a God in our own image in our own likeness and that's not something that we're allowed to do one of the signs that we haven't taken the bible seriously is when we we read the bible and we find that it conforms all to all of our uh, preconceptions because really if we read it carefully if we read it honestly we'll find that the bible challenges us and the reason is is because we're broken sinful people we are cauldrons of pride selfish ambition and vain conceit and yes we are also people of love grace and truth we have the capacity for great good but we also as human beings have the propensity for evil and we need the lens of the bible in order to be able to see ourselves accurately with both honesty and humility and we will find when we read the bible there are ways in which it tells us we ought change both conservatives and progressives will find the bible pushes them to reconsider some deeply held beliefs that's because the bible tells us for example to affirm the dignity of all persons from a zygote to an octogenarian. It tells us to seek justice for all, not just for those who can afford it. It tells us that God blesses the poor, the humble, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemaker, not the proud and the powerful and the wealthy. On important topics, the Bible is very conservative, and on others, it is surprisingly liberal, and it can be very disorienting. But then there are the ways that it challenges us on a personal level, and this is maybe much more difficult, because what we read demands that we respond. Not just that we consider it, think about it, mull it over, but that we get busy and do something. The words listen or hear are in the Bible about 1,500 times. And when we hear the word listen, we think, okay, I've heard it. But in the world of the Bible, the intellectual world of the Bible, the idea of listening or hearing was not just to comprehend, but to actually obey. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said, we pretend to be unable to understand the Bible because we know very well that the minute we do understand, we are obligated to act accordingly. Or said a little more colourfully by Mark Twain, he said, it ain't the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do. The authority of the Bible is not there to control or crush it's not to give information that we legalistically follow instead it's there to liberate us to be fully human in the way that God has created us to live the reformers didn't worship the Bible they didn't worship the words on the page they worshipped the God of the Bible the one whom the Bible reveals and they trusted that God knew best and they surrendered their lives to him my wife Kathy is in a growth group this fall here at City Church and they're learning a devotional method for reading the Bible called Lexio Divinia It's Latin for divine reading. And it's an ancient practice of Bible reading and meditation and prayer that's designed to connect us with God. And this week, they read and discussed Psalm 19. And I happened to see the sheets just as she walked out the door and I skimmed Psalm 19. And when I saw the words on the page, I thought, boy, this is a really great connection with what we're talking about today. And I'm gonna read it in just a moment. You can find it if you'd like on page 787 in the Pew Bible. But let me just tell you that the first, 787, um, the first six verses, tell us how we can observe things about God from the created world around us. It's not about the Bible or the revelation of God. And then it shifts and begins to talk about how the law, which is the Old Testament um, scriptures, can inform us as well. Let me read verses first one to six. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his chorus. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of his warmth. And then again, he shifts to talk about the law, God's revelation to the Hebrew people and what we now have in the Old Testament. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By keeping them, your servant is warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. I encourage you to read it again. It's just a wonderful psalm. And instead of seeing the Bible, the words of the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts, this poet inspires us to the beauty of what God has given us in the pages of the Bible. The Reformers believed that in the Bible they had the very words of God, words that revealed what is good and true and beautiful. And for those reading the Bible for the very first time, the, the results are often very dramatic. For sometimes what happens is one's whole orientation, whole attitude toward life is changed. God speaks to them in ways when they come face-to-face with Jesus and decide once and for all to follow him. A whole way of life is fundamentally changed when God speaks to them through the Bible. Unfortunately, many pass judgment on the Bible without ever reading it. It's not that the Bible has been examined and found unconvincing, it's that it's simply never been examined. But I find that those who do read the Bible find that it has the ring of truth. It's strangely alive. It speaks to our condition in uncanny ways. It's unlike any other ancient document. It guides us into a way of life that is truly transformational. I was telling someone this week that if I could give every one of you a gift, that gift would be the daily habit of reading the Bible and spending a little time in prayer. When I was 12, I went to a church camp for a week. Now, the background is a few months earlier, I'd made a decision to be a follower of Jesus. I'd gone to church my entire life, but somehow that year the penny dropped for me and it all made sense. And I understood that Jesus died for my sins, that when he rose again, he'd given me the possibility of a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. And so I decided to follow him. So that week at camp, my counselor was a guy named Phil. Now, let me just describe Phil. Phil was a clarinet player. had a master's degree from the New England Conservatory of Music. He practiced every afternoon. By telling you all of that, I can tell you that we thought he was a nerd. Um, But he cared for this little cabin of squirrely middle-aged boys. One day, Phil and I were walking to some activity. It's just the two of us, and we started talking about reading the Bible. And then he said to me, you know, you could do that. And I'd never thought about it before because I thought the Bible was for adults. I was 12. I didn't need to read the Bible. And yet what he said made sense. And so that following year when I started, I think, seventh grade, I began to do what he suggested. And at first, I've got to be honest with you, it was a little bit hit or miss. But nearly 50 years later now, it's something I do nearly every day. The effect on my life has been incalculable. Each day that I spend with God helps me develop and continue to nurture a deep and intimate relationship with God that I couldn't have any other way. So here's my challenge to you. The way that I would encourage you to to live it out is to begin to read the Bible, to spend time with God. And the challenge I want to issue to you specifically is, if you've never read the Bible before, to encourage you to start. And do so, let me just tell you, don't start with Genesis. Genesis. Don't go on and read Leviticus. Read one of the biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. There are four of them, the shortest of them is Mark. So if you wanna get at it quickly and be able to feel you've accomplished something, consider reading Mark. It's also one of the most engaging. You don't need anything other than a Bible. Although we do have some simple guides. Here's one of them we have that just takes you through the book of Mark, little sections by section, paragraph by paragraph, each of which will take you no longer than five minutes to read. It'll take you about four months, if you do it Monday to Friday, give yourself Saturday and Sunday off, but just read through it and see what happens. For some of you, it will be a good reminder of what you've read before, maybe you'll have a few new insights. For others of you though, this could be a life transforming experience. It may be that these spirit inspired words will jump off the page, come to life, and you will never be the same. Some years ago, a publisher in Great Britain, invited a well-known, respected scholar to produce a translation of the four biographies of Jesus. Now many found this particular scholar to be an odd choice because then in his 60s, he had been a lifelong agnostic, although his son was a Christian. So when he accepted the publisher's offer, someone asked his son about it and his son said, well, it will be interesting to see what father makes of the four gospels, but it will even be more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of father. A year later, that professor, that man's father, converted and joined the Church of England. And perhaps in the next few weeks, as you read, maybe Mark or one of the other biographies of Jesus, your story may be just like that man's story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. May we read it and when we do, may we find all that we need for life and godliness. May the way of salvation be clear to us and the way of life you have for us made plain. And may we learn to worship not just the words on the page, but you, our creator, the one who is revealed in the pages of the Bible. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.